Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of A Journey Through Time and Stuff. My name is Aaron, and today you can call me Old Aaron Drives Too Fast, Old Aaron Maybe Runs Behind Sometimes, and Old Aaron uh, Is Trying to Shake the Nerves Off. So this is a cool one. Um, This is one of the reasons I love doing this show is... For one, I get to introduce wonderful people in my life to everybody out there, and I get to selfishly um, entertain the curiosity and the the wonder um, that I have myself. And uh, I have been gracious enough in life to have been around so many interesting people who branched out into so many avenues of art and creativity and learning and science communication and and all of this and it is it is a privilege to be able to introduce one of the one of the people that i think has ascended the farthest in uh, the cool factor of what science can do of what of what learning and curiosity and pursuit of passion can aim towards when when you ask somebody uh, or a child or something like that like what is something you want to do a very i mean a very very common answer among policemen and firemen is astronauts and um i know it's always been a passion for me and i think we're about to find out for this wonderful person as well so i would like to introduce my longtime friend uh and spacewalk engineer at johnson space center Tess Caswell, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, and thanks for having the introduction. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So how how are things? Um, you know, I know you're in Houston, and uh, weather has been crazy. So I would like to start there, and just it's the most common thing that everybody's talking about right now: snowpocalypse. And so oh how, yeah, how, snowpocalypse. It? <laughs> it was a uh, it was interesting. You know, it was. Um, quite the reminder of how uh, fundamentally we are dependent upon civilization, right? And the grid. Oh. And as soon as we lost electricity, everything else started falling apart too. So, you know, mm-hmm. then it got cold, pipes started bursting, the water pressure started dropping all over the city, then water started going out everywhere. And then the cell towers were going down and the gas stations were running out of gas. And it was wow. just one cascading thing after another um, that really just reminded me how reliant we become on the infrastructure that we've built around ourselves. But it gave me an opportunity to uh, tap into my Alaskan roots and pull out my camping equipment. So, you know, cooked myself some meals over a Coleman stove and pulled out all my old hats and coats and gloves. And I still have the the same hat that I bought when I was doing cross-country skiing in Soldotna. That's amazing. (laughs) That's amazing. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I was kind of curious about that. Did, did you feel kind of, you know, cause being kids in Alaska and just growing up, especially in the nineties there, um, you know, one, we were used to very crazy winter conditions. They did taper off into the two thousands and up till now, but man, and you know, I remember being a little kid and just weather being unpredictable and crazy and uh you would get flashed two and a half three feet of snow in a night and you know things like that Um, yeah and then so you know we were also no stranger to power going out or being far less reliant period on a grid um Mm -hmm. you know for periods of time not even having running water or things like that you know so um i was gonna ask did that kind of uh 
like nature part of of life kick in and you feel the did you feel secure um like in your I own I think I probably felt a little more comfortable than a lot of people because of that yeah. I I wished for the old you know cast iron stove uh in the old cabin you know cuz the other side of it is that you're equipped for it right yes, like yes. if we lost power overnight in Alaska when we were kids like we had wood burning stoves and we were, we were used to it. We were ready for it. You know, when you got two feet of snow overnight, mm-hmm. there were an army of snow plows and, you know, school would be delayed by two hours. Right. But we would still go. Yeah. yeah. There wasn't <laughs> um, an option. <laughs> right. And so, um, you know, it did, it did bring to the forefront that, that idea that you're prepared for it. Right. And a lot of times people like to give Texans a hard time, like, Oh, it's, it's not even that cold, you know, it didn't even snow, but yeah. it's all about whether or not your whole infrastructure and your whole lifestyle is prepared for that sort of thing. And right. this area just isn't. So, so was, I felt pretty comfortable, but was a lot this, of people weren't. Was this the first um, kind of big weather thing that you've had to deal with in, in not in Alaska? Like, like, you know, in I live in Portland and we're really not equipped to have snow here, which is when I first moved here was mind blowing to me because it snows every year here, you know, granted it's only for like a weekend or like this last time we had snow on the ground for five days. And even now there's a still a couple like of those dirt packed clumps of snow Mm -hmm. that sits in the corner of a parking lot for far too long. And, um, that's, but it, you know, even here there, there are snow plows, but there's only like five or six for Portland, you know? And so they just kind of, (laughs) move snow onto main streets and block off every side entrance to any roadway at all. And, uh, it very underprepared. Was this kind of the first one for you in a place that was really unprepared as it's kind of the light's been shown on that was, or. Yeah. I think it was the first time I've ever been in a place where weather really, uh, won out over any sort of infrastructure, right. You know, here they have the hurricanes, pretty regularly and a lot of people were comparing it to sort of weathering a hurricane like they were referring to getting out their hurricane supplies to deal with the time when their power is out uh so that aspect wasn't new to a lot of people here although it's the first time i've been here for something like that um the main thing was the cold and people trying to stay warm through it yeah that was um you know hearing that you know six zero degrees right it even got below zero in some places in texas yeah, I mean, people, well, the wind chills were dipping into the, yeah, negative 10 range oh, wow. in yeah, some places. That's real Even cold, Even in Houston, people. they were talking about that, which is crazy for yeah, here. Yeah, that's colder than, I mean, I've lived in Portland now for seven years, and I've never seen it even in the tens of degrees. It's always like maybe 18 to 20 is like a cold night, um, and people right, freak yeah. out there. And so, you know, even here, I, I you know, I've talked been talking to people about, you know, I have a few friends in Austin. Um, I have you guys there and I have um, uh, a couple other people in Dallas. And, you know, everybody was kind of affected, but it, that's what they all said. It was the cold. And it was like, oh, how cold did it get? I'm like, uh, below zero. Like that's, I know you guys probably don't experience that much, but uh, it's in, it's a very intense situation, especially if there is mm-hmm. no infrastructure to support heat. Yeah, especially. Yeah, exactly. When, when the places here, like, a lot of places they're meant to um, stay cold. Yes, <laughs> like yes. In the, in the summer, we want it to stay as cold as possible inside. Exactly. Um, 
So it was the opposite of what you're usually worried about in this area. I wonder if if Texas is going to break any records this year for the single largest temperature swing yearly. Because I know Fairbanks has done it in years past where it's gotten to like, you know, uh, you know, uh, 90 degrees or 100 degrees above and then 70 below in the winter. And I know that's a large Mm -hmm. swing for there, but I would think in Texas, there aren't too many years where you'll hit 120 degrees and negative 10 degrees in the same year like it's probably not common for the, the south yeah, at especially all. if you can factor in um like north texas where it was even colder right <laughs> and compare against the heat of you know yeah. south texas in the summer you might of course of course yeah and okay here's another quick text a question about texas since you are an alaskan um who lives there does we we all kind of recognize growing up in Alaska just the massive the size of the state. You know, you would you any t- any time anybody drove to Fairbanks, you just uh, from the peninsula where we grew up, you understood that you only covered uh, about half the state. Uh, there's still more north of you than you were able to drive, um, and then there's all south of you that there's no roads to. So we, but does Texas to you feel immense, large, like everybody says Texas is? But just driving through Houston feels immense sometimes. Really? You can drive for two hours and still, you know, go from one side of Houston to the other. So you're still like in the greater Houston area for oh, two wow. hours. Wow. And you're gone the interstate. So, you know, you're going 70, 75 and sure. you're in Houston forever. Sure. Um, I, yeah. I don't think I ever really got quite the feel for how enormous Texas is, though, until I drove I-10 across it. <laughs> and I haven't ever driven all the way across it, but just driving like from Houston, even to Louisiana, you know, oh, you go right. several hours. Uh-huh. Um, and if you go to El Paso in the other direction, I mean, I think that's literally seven hours of driving, you know, still yeah, yeah. in Texas. Yeah. So, so it, you do feel you. Yeah. So that's cool. That's cool that it's you, you still get that immense feeling, you know. Um, and then you you had spent time in, in Seattle, Pacific Northwest, right? Mm hmm. Yeah, yeah, I lived in Seattle for okay, a few yeah, years. Okay, yeah, yeah. And and even as kind of big as Seattle is, Seattle doesn't feel probably like the Houston size of city that you're in now. I mean, is it is it really a comparable difference between the two? Oh, yeah. Um it, it Seattle does not feel nearly as expansive as Houston is. And it, it's partly cuz you have, you know, the Cascades and the Olympics and the sound right there. So it's yeah. all kind of hemmed in, right? So Right. It can't ever be as big as Houston is. And I honestly kind of hope that it never is because that sure. area is just so gorgeous. Um, right, right. <laughs> that uh, the sort of urban sprawl that there is here in Houston just doesn't even seem like it would fit there. Like not just physically, but in sort of like a cognitive dissonance type of way, right? Oh, like yeah. the urban sprawl that is Houston just doesn't really belong there. Um, That's... So, so yeah, you just, you don't feel it the same way wow. when you have the mountains there hemming you in, which sure. I actually really love. So. I, yeah, it's, it, it's amazing. And, and it, the P, the Pacific Northwest is kind of just, you get this feeling of, of Alaska sometimes, you know, when, when the mountains yeah. get snow capped, but everything else is still kind of green and it's fall and you see the snow coming toward you it is a, a very familiar feeling. Um, mm-hmm. um, so let's, 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 let's take a journey. Um, you work for NASA. That is amazing. Um, you, as long as I've known you, um, you've been interested in space. Can you tell me in your words, kind of how that started for you? How, you know, how you became attracted to that, the, the, 
the travel, the, the learning, the, the science aspect of all of it, how that clicked for you? Well, I think originally it wasn't even as much about the science as it was about exploration. Uh-huh. That's really what's always been the most interesting to me is like kind of like going out into the woods and playing behind the cabin, you know, as sure, a kid, sure. just going out and seeing what's out there and, and wandering around and finding things and looking around. And, and so to me, spaceflight is kind of the same thing of going to new places and learning new things yeah. and, um, you know, going to the moon, going to Mars, even going to the outer planets and going to some of the moons out there. I mean, they're just incredible things to be seen and things to be learned about right. the whole solar system that teach us about the earth. So there's just a lot of stuff to, to go and see and do. And so that's what really compels me about it. Was it the um, moon it when you were all started young? in fifth grade? Huh? I said, was it the moon first for you? <laughs> for me first, I honestly, it was the space shuttle. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course it would have been the space shuttle. Perfect. It's just such a gorgeous machine. Isn't and it? I obviously I'm an engineer, but I think it is a beautiful space vehicle. It really is. It's so ergonomic. It looks like you could recline on it in almost any position. Um and even you know, sitting upright strapped to the the tank and the rocket boosters, it it is kind of just this it is to me. It was always reminiscent of like what what Apollo program was. You know, it kind of had that old, very rugged, tactile, adventurous feeling to the construction, but yet sleek. And they went to mm-hmm. reusable, and so they 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 thought about the almost aesthetics was put in as an equation for that. Yeah, good point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was um, very graceful as a space vehicle goes. Right, like we're so used to boosters and capsules and Mm -hmm. things that are very blunt and um, very sort of straightforward in shape and the space shuttle you could look at it and you could see what it was supposed to do right you could see that it had boosters for going into space but then it had wings for you know well they called it a flying brick but we can say that it was gracefully flying back down to earth yeah yeah i mean you know you would it it at least attempted to manipulate air right Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah that's awesome. That's yeah, awesome. so it was a big picture of the space shuttle that uh, Mr. Boyle in fifth grade had up on the wall of our classroom that really like captured my imagination, and that was like the rest is history. That's awesome. That's awesome. So, so on that, um, how soon after that did you make it in your head that NASA was the end goal? As soon as you, I mean, was that kind of right then in that trajectory, or or how did that work? Because I, I imagine it's an incredibly argu- arduous process to to get to. Yeah, there. it was pretty much right after that that I um, got hooked on human spaceflight specifically. Oh, hooked on, um, yes, hooked on human spaceflight. Yeah, flight. for me, I, I find humans going forth and adventuring a little more compelling than sending a robot. Although um, I've studied a lot of the data that the robots and the rovers sent back, and all of those missions are incredible, and they... We could go on and on about some of the crazy ones that have just landed and are going to launch relatively soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I've been following Curiosity pretty pretty closely on on its mission. Yeah, right and now, then so. I just saw that some of the first like panoramic images from Perseverance just came back as well. <sighs> that w- so. yeah, that I in incredible resolution had um, sand dunes and all that stuff. The, that nice big yeah. panoramic view was, was incredible for me to see. But you know, what's always funny to me 
when when I see those 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 pictures for as long as we've been getting rover shots, um, I always find myself looking down at the tops of the rovers, and because I'm a mechanic, that's what I do. So I'm not, you know, I, I'm not a engineer by trade, but I'm. I, you know, I've taken a lot of math and, and just as a, as a hobby, because I absolutely love math and I love physics. And, um, I was always, you know, I was in principles of technology in high school and I, the mechanical world, the, the physics world. Um, and by that, I mean, I mean, not, not, not physics as in like, uh, atomic physics, you know, Newtonian physics. Um, right. Yeah. How uh, things work. Push yes. And pull yes. And... Levers, me- mechanical advantage. All of those things yeah. are so intrinsically natural to me. Um, and I, I just get I get levers. I get how things work. And so when I started learning, you know, formulas for physics, when I started learning that you could all of a sudden be calculating large bodies at high speeds and the pursuit of. Un- kind of how numbers describe the natural world. You know, I got incredibly fascinated that I could figure out orbital velocity of the moon. I could figure out orbital orbital velocity of the ISS. I could figure out uh, gravita- gravitational relationships between them, and 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 um, those became fascinating. And then I had to teach myself better math to understand that was that something for you as well were you always a math person a physics person did it was it intuitive for you i would say that like you mechanical things are natural to me yeah um and i i think a lot of that is credit to my dad who is a mechanic yes, and a yes. lot, spent a lot of time in the garage with him working on the car working on motorcycles you know stuff as a yeah, kid yeah, yeah um and so yeah thinking about how mechanical systems work has been something that comes relatively easily to me. Um, math uh, is something that, <laughs> you know, I got a math minor in college, but I do always feel like I've kind of tolerated it as a means to an end. <laughs> I wouldn't say that um, complex math, especially, you know, higher level calculus or differential equations yeah. came particularly easy to me. No, But yeah. I'm, I'm willing to put in the work because like you said, when it's something you're really interested in, then it makes it worth the effort of sure. figuring that kind of stuff out. Sure, sure. Um, that that's incredibly fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I uh, also have many n- memories of cold nights on garage floors working on on things with dads as well. Um, that's that's, that's <laughs> the things that we're willing to put up with for fun times with parents yeah, as well. Yeah, well, you not know, just math that's willing to put up with. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And um, it it you know it it created a thing. And I think that was something maybe, you know, I kind of find fortunate about growing up in Alaska. Um, and maybe you could, you could feel the same as there was, we had a lot of reliance on having to figure things out. Problem solving, um, was a, a kind of general, not maybe not day to day, but it was required for general life in Alaska. At mm-hmm. some point there is a problem solving thing. Um, whether it's just, you know, expeditely shoveling snow clearing driveways to getting cars unstuck to to anything like that that requires force um and then also you know we didn't have great access to a lot of new things so fixing things was something as well and Mm -hmm. realizing at a young age that you could anything could be taken apart because people built it right so everything was built 
by at that time by people and so if it, they assembled it we should be able to take it apart um mm-hmm. was that also part of your fascination with with mechanical things i've always liked being able to fix things uh i've never been one to just spontaneously take things apart for the sake of uh, figuring out what's inside of it okay. um often because I will get myself into trouble and not be able to put it back together again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, especially if it comes to an electrical system of any kind, I really need a manual for those. Okay. Um, but but yeah, I think it's the same thing in terms of um, not having easy access to everything, right? And so yeah. you really had to appreciate and care for the things that you had, and you had to know how to maintain those things because right. it wasn't easy to get another one. Yeah, it, or you know, maybe you couldn't get out of your driveway to to get to a snowplow, so you better make sure that yours runs. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and I I imagine that is that point you just made is super translatable to what you do now, um, on you know working in modules with the ISS or spacewalk crews or stuff like that. They only have the stuff they have, and it's very hard to get new stuff. And designing mm-hmm. designing systems, designing, uh operating procedures and things like that for repairs um mm-hmm. is probably at up of utmost importance in in what you do now so kind yeah of apropos. absolutely um that's awesome um, in, oh. a, in a couple of different ways one is that that ability to think through a sequence of events from afar yeah. uh, i'm sure you you've had to deal with manuals that were well written and manuals that weren't well written <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah. It's like night and day. And so we try really hard to write manuals well so that when the crew go on a spacewalk where they're, you know, wearing nothing but, uh, you know, less than an inch of material between them and the vacuum of space in their own little personal balloon, mm-hmm. um, you know, they can be safe and efficient while they're outside. That's that's um, amazing. Recycling what you have up there as well. Right. So the yeah. space station, they recycle all of the air and the water that they can. So every last little bit of liquid um, and um, on the um, air side, you know, filtering out the CO2, correct? collecting the CO2 and turning it back into water <laughs> and methane. Scrubbers, so just, like, right? Those are air scrubbers? Bit. Yeah. 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 Um, on the shuttle, they just sucked out the CO2 and it went into the filters and was gone forever. But on space station, they actually collect it and, you know, run it back through a system and redeem it or recycle it. So yeah. It's pretty cool. That, that's amazing. That's amazing. Um, so <clears throat> when, when I guess, you know, I take me kind of through finishing high school, did you already have a plan and in, in, you know, finishing high school, planning your college trip to, you know, knowing you'd have to go into aeronautics and engineering and, and learn all of these things. Did you, how did you plan that? How did you have like a, a, a fast track? Had you, have you already talked to other people who are astronauts or engineers at NASA and, and see what they did? How did you know that? How, how did that happen? <laughs> That's an excellent question. Um, and I will say I had a pretty, rock solid plan when I graduated from high school and then literally none of it actually happened. Oh no. Okay. Tell me, tell me it. Tell me it. So when I was a little kid, um, when I was 12, maybe I met Pete Conrad, who was the third man to walk on the moon. Yeah. Um, at an event at the challenger learning center of Alaska. Yep. And he and Joe Allen, who was a space shuttle astronaut, they were there for a, a fundraising event. And they told me, 
that if I wanted to be an astronaut, I should go to a military academy and become a pilot. So get a degree in engineering, aerospace preferably, right? Um, and then become a pilot and and go the military route. <clears throat> mm. And so as a little kid, I thought, okay, if that's what I got to do, that's what I'm going to do. Um, so all throughout you know middle school, high school, I just uh, worked uh. towards doing everything possible to get into the Air Force Academy. Uh-huh. Um, and I did. I got appointed to the Air Force Academy. I went right after high school. And when I got there, I just realized that it was not the right place for me. Yeah. Um, you know, at the time, don't ask, don't tell was a policy. And I was intuitively okay with it. But when I got there and I was in it, I was mm-hmm. so uncomfortable that I just decided that it was not not a good place for me to be. So yeah, that's, um, so I left after a month and then I had no plan. Did you have a, was it, was it kind of like a moral, uh, uh, it, did, did you feel that you were, you didn't have a choice? Was that kind of, I've, I've heard it from other people who've done other adventurous military perspectives is they, that you have to give up a lot of autonomy and, uh, was yeah, that, and for me, it, it, it's hard to say without because, being you know, when you're 17, you have to be so self-aware <laughs> And I don't know that I really was at 17. No, no one is. um, No one is at 17. And so sometimes I think, you know, if I went, if I had gone now, I might have made a different choice because I know myself better and I understand what drives me better. Um, But a lot of things were different back then. And hindsight is always 2020. But um, for me, it was more just like once I was in the environment, I felt this like deep, um, discomfort with being in a place where I had to lie while also living by a a very stringent honor code. And those two things just didn't mesh for me. Yeah. 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 And so just on a, on an emotional level, it made me very, very uncomfortable, um, which wasn't something I realized until I was actually there. Of course. Of course. Of course. Yeah. um, yeah, Most of the time, most of the time it's being in, in, confronted with a situation you know it's 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 like kind of you said about writing manuals you think you can be writing a really good manual but you didn't think about something that they would they would only encounter by having their by being in person with an interaction versus thinking afar from it right Mm -hmm. yeah sometimes you think you're really good at putting yourself into that situation and imagining what it's going to be like but the reality turns out to be very different right right okay so so Uh, so you did that didn't work air force academy didn't work um how did you find your catch yourself stumbling out of that one? So I, I returned to Alaska in the middle of the summer after high school. And uh, my mom had actually called one of the universities I'd applied to and like pretended to be me and said like, oh, you know, can I get my re- financial aid reinstated and all this stuff? And it worked. And they were like, yeah, you could still come and blah, blah, blah. But I was just so like thrown by this whole thing that had just happened to me. I said, you know, I just want to stay close to home. So I went to the University of Alaska Fairbanks and I told myself, you know, I'll do some core classes um, and then I'll transfer to like a quote better school. Um, But once I got there, I realized that UAF is the only university in the world that owns its own sounding rocket launch facility. Yep. And a team of students gets to build pa- payloads to launch on sounding rockets from and, that facility. And do, don't and they I have said, one of the yeah. best engineering programs and mathematics programs in the country as well? Well, they, they have a very good engineering program. Um, I don't 
know where it ranks nationally. And civil engineering up there is phenomenal. Oh, c- okay. Um, civil, yeah. 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 Especially with like the cold climate housing research that they do up there. And yeah, so right. they do a lot of really cool stuff. And honestly, um, you know, even if it's not on paper, like one of the top 10 engineering schools in the country, the fact that I had the opportunity to walk in as a freshman and start working on a sounding rocket payload that I got to help launch in my senior year of college uh, in an experience that directly contributed to me getting a job at NASA, like that right there should put it in the top 10, even if it isn't on paper. You know, the fact that students have that kind of opportunity is phenomenal. That's amazing. You just gave me goosebumps. Wow. That's, that's a, that's an incredibly powerful experience. Um, It really was. And it's just like you're talking about getting that hands-on experience with machines, right? Like I didn't just study aerospace engineering. I got to help literally build a rocket. Yeah. yeah. How many people can say that? uh, Um, I mean, I built model rockets, you know, I, I did some big double stage A mo- engine ro- nice. model rockets, you know, big ones. That Step would, one. Yeah, yeah. But but I, I really stopped there. Um, uh, no, not many people, not many people can say they successfully do that. Um, that That's amazing. What, uh, by by sounding rocket, can you define that a little more? Oh, yeah. So it's, it's a class of um, suborbital rockets. So Okay. Rockets that go to space but don't go into orbit of the Earth. Yep. Yep. So, yep. Um, we basically the the Alaska Space Grant has an agreement with the NASA Sounding Rocket Operations Organization, um, and they basically gave us an old sounding rocket that they weren't going to use for anything else. So it had been sort of deemed um, surplus and then donated for university research. Um, and so through this partnership, the space grant built the uh, Alaska student rocket project yeah. and students got to design and build the whole payload to put on it. And so we launched to 100 kilometers into the D region of the ionosphere. So we had a whole bunch of science instruments that were also built by students. That's um, amazing. Yeah. That flew into space. What year did so then that came back down and made a really big crater somewhere in the middle of Alaska. <laughs> um, um, okay. I have a question about that, but I'm going to put a pin in that for a second. Um, what year did you do this? We launched in uh, January of 2009. 2009. Okay, interesting. Um, so I guess you guys, w- you know, um, I just wonder what what feedback technology were you using? What what things were you monitoring? Um, get please and get as get as nerdy and as in depth as you want because, like <laughs> I said, so, this is as much as this is a podcast for everybody. This is also for me selfishly to nerd out on. And, <laughs> and I, I absolutely love si- system programming. I love, um, complex, complex system engineering. I, I absolutely love it. Like I was saying earlier, when I'm, when I get, when I'm, you know, a- as someone who, you know, builds cars and, and does, you know, has to map out wiring harnesses and feedback loops and, um, and worrying about closed systems and open systems and, and all of, all of this type of, of design when I'm looking at the, the, the photos taken from perseverance or taken, um, from curiosity, I, I instantly look down and I'm following wiring harnesses and run up to the, okay, that servo is doing this thing. Let's see. Okay. Okay. It splits off here. So it's talking to these two and I'm, I'm, I'm looking at all of the design aspects and, and then I look yeah. at the ge- steering geometry of the tires and how the dry, I try and just get it all in my head. Um, so what what kind of what kind of system 
op, uh, optics were you looking at for the launch? What were you monitoring? What kind of uh, did you do any tests while it was up in 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 the D region of the ionosphere? Did what what were yeah. kind of some of the specs of your your program? Um, so we well. I will tell you, I started out as the mechanical engineering lackey. So uh, the mechanical stuff was way more my bailiwick than any of the uh, yeah. signal processing and, sure, sure. and all that stuff. But um, please tell me. We, yeah. we had a bunch of different things. So some of the, the science experiments, at least, we had a magnetometer, um, so measuring magnetic field throughout yeah. the flight. Um, we had a UV sensor. We had a sun sensor. Um, the sun sensor was basically. It was four sensors around the circumference of the vehicle that basically measured um, the spin rate yeah, of yeah. the vehicle. Yeah, you would need a solid um, reference point for that. Yeah. And we had, let's see, we measured um, radio frequency attenuation by the ionosphere. Oh, so we interesting. Had a, yeah. So we had a um, an antenna built into the nose cone of the vehicle. And so we had to... Uh, the students before me had basically invented a, an RF transparent nose cone material um, that they could really? put an antenna inside and receive signals during the flight through. And so they were um, they were checking for attenuation in yeah bounce back and all, um, all that up there. Wow! And so that was that in itself was kind of cool because it not only had to um, withstand the structural loads of the launch, which went up to twenty Gs. Yeah. Um, but also the thermal environment, right? So that that kind of acceleration led to really high temperatures, you know, in the hundreds of degrees along the nose cone. So um, it had to be really strong um, mechanically and thermally in order to survive the flight. So that in and of itself was sort of part of the experiment. Um, we had a non-pyrotechnic door that basically deployed on a, a, a solenoid and springs um, oh, wow. to test like a deployment mechanism that didn't involve pyrotechnics was that so is that part of of maybe more of what you would have focused on is the actual operation mechanically of the the release latch mechanism opening yeah you know cool cool and and basically the the whole mechanical structure inside of the vehicle so you know the the longeron structure that supported all the deck plates it had i can't even remember anymore five or six deck plates that were loaded full of instruments and how how you you play the jenga of fitting all of those oh. instruments into the the space allocated within the shell of the vehicle sure um, and and how you make space for things like the wiring harnesses yeah um and, and, and have all... the wiring harnesses make sense and make it to the power pack and have the power pack be strong enough that it withstands well, flight and stuff like that well i guess and then you would have to do you would have to run um you would have to, you know, be thinking of, well, these parts have to go here. They can't be too far away from these other parts, but we also mm -hmm. need, we also need, you know, torque and a deflection structure in these things so that, that we don't get movement. So maybe parts yep. have to be designed as an integral part of, of, of stress rel relieving, um, you know, uh, and so, yeah, I guess you would have to have, I mean, for lack of a better word, uh, know your triangles, right? Know your spheres yeah. and your triangles. Lots of, lots of triangles, and then lots of um, vibration testing and spin testing. Oh wow! Oh oh yeah, because oh, so when it's launching, um, obviously the ailerons would would be 
adding corkscrew for for lack of a better mm-hmm. term um uh how many g's or how fast are rpms i guess it would be in rpms um w- was the rocket w- w- did you plan on the rocket actually spinning in in its flight do you remember i honestly cannot remember anymore <laughs> I, but was it pretty fast i mean, I mean was it was it in like it was the, really fast though. like thousands think, like, of rpms no, um, I think somewhere around like a hundred. Oh, oh, okay. So, so not crazy, not not spinning like a top top, but still pretty fast. Yeah, uh, just enough to keep it nice and stable. Yeah, of course, of course, of course. Um, wow, that's cool. So, so you do that, you 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 get there. Where did you go from UAF? Um, How did I did a couple go? of internships while I was in college. Uh, one of which was with a company called United Space Alliance, who is the prime contractor for the space shuttle yeah. program. Yeah. Um, and they, they were also at the time doing space station operations. So I interned with them um, in the life support system group for the space station. And they offered me a job working in mission control as my first job out of college. Really? So at, at Johnson? when I graduated from UAF, I went moved to Houston and started my training to become a flight controller for ISS. Oh, <laughs> it what, was pretty wild. What did that feel? What did that feel like? Like, uh, oh, it was awesome. You know, I really felt like I had uh, kind of achieved a dream, right? Getting yeah. a job at JSC, and I, I still love it. Every time I drive past the gate here and I drive past the big sign that's got the NASA meatball on it, it says Johnson's you know, Lyndon B. Johnson Space Center. And every time I just get a little thrill of like, I just love yeah. this place. So yeah, I was yeah. very, very excited. Yeah. You have to drive down NASA. Is it NASA way or what's the, what's the road that they... NASA road one, NASA road one. That's right. That's right. Yeah. 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 That's, that's, that's so cool. It's, it, it, it's, it almost sounds like it's, it's the beginning of a movie, right? It, it is just kind of this uh, ethereal, exciting <laughs> moment. Like I said, everybody wants to feel that feeling be an astronaut you watch all the space movies and they take the trip into the space center where they're preparing and they're getting their training done um wow those are always really funny though because in those in movie scenes jsc is always like really sleek and with lots of like modern buildings with lots of glass and all this stuff and then in real life it's a lot of office buildings that were built in the 60s yeah yeah lots of concrete very small windows yeah, they've been, they've done a really good job recently of building more like environmentally friendly buildings with like you know more of that modern look. But there are a lot of very blocky, you know, but wasn't, floor like, sure, buildings. But, but wasn't that kind of the um, the appeal of of NASA at that time? Is hey, we need to we need to get this done. We have a program, you know. We the space. We we got to get to the moon. We got to we got to do all of these things. Let's facilities had to pop up they had to be there and they had mm-hmm. to be able to last because you know f- knowing where funding came from at the time um you know maybe they the money that they were getting had to go into space right not into facilities so i guess it kind of makes sense well originally there were so jsc was leased from rice university so the, the land was leased from rice university with these ah. caveats that it had to be developed like a campus um, because there were people sort of hedging their bets at Rice who thought, you know, maybe the space thing would blow over <laughs> and they would get this really nice campus built for them by the government. Yeah. So I think they leased the whole site to NASA for like a dollar an acre or something like that. It's a wow. like really low value. Um, 
And then, of course, NASA stuck around. So JSC has kind of like an old college campus feel because of that. Cool. So, so you started interning with mich- doing mission control programming or, or, or monitoring. Is that the way you would say it? Like, yeah, monitoring, okay. operating, operating. So, so would you be on a headset then, like talking mm-hmm. to the crew? I, I, explain. Cause I, I never I, got to talk to the astronauts directly. So okay. there's only one person. Well, technically two people who ever get to really talk to the crew on like a normal basis. Uh-huh. Um, there's the, the Capcom, right, that everyone's heard of, yep, yep. you know, the capsule communicator. Um, and they're the ones, they're usually an astronaut or someone trained by the astronauts. And, you know, they're supposed to be able to sort of advocate for the crew. And they're like their own position in mission control in addition to being the ones who talk to them. Um, and then sometimes the flight directors get to talk to the crew. But I, I was um, an environmental and thermal systems officer. My console position, my call sign was Ethos, Ethos. Um, for environmental oh. and thermal operating systems. Um, and so I was responsible for monitoring the the air on board the space station. So everything from the composition to the temperature and the humidity um, and the water. So making sure that all of that equipment I talked about earlier for recycling water was yeah. working correctly and providing the right amount of water to the crew at any given time, which was actually a, a kind of a dance between input and output <laughs> since it's a giant recycling system. Right. And and was that for the whole space station or the U.S. parts, the U.S. modules or? Yeah, that's um, a great question. So for the U.S. modules primarily, um, or I should say the U.S. segment. So basically right, right. the space station, as you were kind of alluding to, is divided into halves, basically yep. like the Russian side and the U.S. side, which includes all the other international partner modules. Correct. And we were mostly responsible for the U.S. segment because that's where all of our equipment was. Um, and then we had... Um, basically government agreements like international agreements that govern things like how much condensation each side of the space station collected and stuff like that um, because it all comes down to that balance of water and like yeah where it goes and who gets to recycle it and who gets to use it so it, there's a little bit of an in- intricate dance in that regard in- interesting do you have any do you have any kind of cool memories from that period when you when you were interning and doing things that kind of stick with you still that maybe you got you were you got to do or you were involved with or any any cool i don't know instances that kind of stick out to you from that section that that point of your yeah oh there are a bunch of cool things um back when the space shuttle was flying they used to let every once in a while you as an employee or even as an intern you would get um, opportunities to fly the space shuttle simulator, um, the motion-based simulator. So you'd get in, you'd get all strapped in. It would like rotate you up on your back. You'd go through launch and then like f- they would do a return to launch site abort. So then we would fly back to Kennedy Space Center and land yeah. it. And it's like moving around, you know? Um, so those were always super cool. I got to do that a couple of times. Wow. Um, working in the control center, <laughs> strangely enough, is often quite uneventful which is what you want right you don't I, want crazy things I, happening i didn't want to assume but i would imagine you said okay you're monitoring you're monitoring air levels uh saturation levels all of that stuff humidity in the air and water i would imagine you know you're looking for quick trends um but mm-hmm. i would imagine with systems operating correctly probably it's a very slow trending baseline yes. and so <laughs> so you're you're watching parts per million increase by decimal places and recording that i mean i would assume that's probably day to day operation yeah i mean the you spend a lot of time in simulations 
okay. training for the times when numbers change fast. In the control center, like do they do they simulate mm-hmm. lie like in front of you there? Well, so there's like a there are a couple of different training control centers. So okay. before okay. you're allowed to actually sit in the front room unsupervised and control the systems of the space station, um, I went through. 25 simulations where I was graded and given feedback okay. on my performance. Um, and wow. in those, you know, every crazy thing imaginable happens. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. There will be fires and water leaks and air leaks and ammonia leaks and toxic spills and, you know, loss of vehicle command and control. And they would just, they would go out of control. <laughs> Um, so that by the time you're actually working on console for the real vehicle, it's almost boring. Do they do, do they do a, a pretty good job at, did you feel like the simulation was real? Do they do a good job at, at kind of, I mean, obviously they have to take you through, you know, what you would do. And, um, but I just wonder like, was it stressful? Did it, did it, how did that impact you? Did you feel like the pressure? They're very realistic um, and they um, they sort of incrementally increase in realism as you go through the training flow. So initially it's like you and two other, three other people and then um, some instructors that are pretending to be everyone else in the control center. And then nah. you kind of ramp up to being in a, in an actual control center with a real flight director and a real astronaut playing Capcom and, you know, people in a simulator pretending to be the astronauts. So um, they can get pretty realistic and pretty complex really fast. Wow! Wow! What, did was it stressful? Like, did you go home? Have like, did did you pull your hair out at night wondering how the simulation was going to go, or was there any of that feeling, or was it all kind of, you know, like supportive and real teamwork driven, and you mm-hmm. didn't feel the personal stress? How how did that play out? You definitely get stressed just because, like, your final sim you know they're just going to throw the whole kitchen sink at you, right? And like a flight director is assigned to just sit there and watch you and evaluate your performance. And um, so it can be really stressful. And they, they really, you know, hammer home that, that ultimately, like when you're on console, human lives are on the line, right? Like we're there to support the astronauts and keep them alive when things get really bad. Yeah. Um, so there's an element of that stress, but I think what you're saying is also true in that it's a really, really well-developed training pr- program with a lot of really phenomenal instructors, and they want you to succeed. And they, they've built the program to build you up into a flight controller, and it, it's very supportive and, and very um, focused on constructive feedback and, sure. and helping you through the process. Is it pretty singular focus, like people would focus on you or is it, is it really teamwork driven? Like you're doing this part and you, and you kind of learn to rely on the other people around for other modules or how, I mean, how, how does that flow go? Is it a, it's a little of both. Um, initially they, well, I, I would say that they start pushing both in parallel pretty early on in the training flow. Um, what, what they generally find is that people are good at learning systems Right. And learning how their system works and how to operate it, but integrating into the bigger picture and doing and the teamwork aspect of it is much harder for most people to pick up. Yeah. Um, and so they have to start that aspect of the training right away with little integrated malfunctions that start small and grow as you go throughout your flow. Interesting. Okay. 
Wow, that's yeah. Because I, I, I would imagine it. It to me, it seems kind of like a lot. You know, I mean, obviously there there has to be cohesion, but it seems like it's just kind of a lot of single parts working. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, working together, but but not that. I don't know. I from the outside and, and ignorance, I would I would I would just assume that you know maybe there's not a lot of cross communication between you know this operations group and this operations group unless they had to unless something went wrong that they needed to work together i would mm-hmm. imagine i don't i don't know it's it seems there are a lot of dependencies you know like for the life support system um in order for the co2 scrubber to work you need power and you need data mm. and those come from other flight control disciplines um, and so you do interact with them quite a bit in real time to sort of manage those inputs and outputs uh, in addition to controlling your own system. Um, so you do end up coordinating and, and working together with other disciplines a lot. Gotcha, um, gotcha. EVA, which is my current group, the spacewalking group, yeah. is uh, a pretty good example of that too. Like you can go out and do a spacewalk and sure it'll be great, but, uh, you got to make sure that you don't put the space station into some worse config than when you started, right? And there's all sorts of safing of external things that other systems use that could be potential hazards to a spacewalking astronaut. So you end up talking to a whole bunch of different disciplines right. in order to set the team up for a spacewalk. Right, right. Okay, EVA. Yeah, I, I really want to talk about that because that's that's another fascinating aspect of of just, cool. Of, well, of, if you of, want to talk about it, we better get to because I'm going to have to go here probably okay. in like ten minutes. Oh, really? Oh, okay, okay, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, um, I I didn't realize we had that little time off. Okay, well, well, let's do this. Yeah, sorry, no. I, I, uh, sorry if that did, throws off your nope, your flow. Nope, nope, nope. We're totally good. We're totally good. Um, okay, so I I want to ask one thing real fast. What is it like being a pilot, and why did you want to learn to fly airplanes? Oh well. Uh, growing up in Alaska, you just see tiny airplanes everywhere, right? Yeah, yeah. And I, I always kind of wanted to learn to fly, but it's very expensive and time consuming. Uh, and so yeah. I had to get to a point in my life where I could afford it and had the luxury of time to do it. Um, so that's why it took me so long to get to it, but I've always kind of wanted to do it. Um, and it's, it's so much fun. I just, I really enjoy the freedom of flight. Uh, and the perspective that it gives you on the world. Yeah. But it's, to me, it's also just another one of those ways of adventuring and sure. going out and exploring sure. that I really enjoy. And, and, and really quick, do you have hopes of going into space? Is that something you're aiming towards? Is it even a possibility in your, your trajectory of, of your, your job or, or how, how do you, how does that, you've, you've, how do you view that? I would love to go to space. <laughs> um, I applied for the last astronaut selection and I'll probably apply for the next one. Okay. Um, and I'll keep applying because why not? Um, but it's also one of those things where if the odds are pretty low, so you got to love what you do either way. Of course. And I love my current job and I'd be happy to do it forever. But if I got, ever got that offer, I would very much take it. <laughs> well, well, right. So, so you interned there, you moved to the PNW and, and, and interned mm-hmm. there for a while. Now you're back at Johnson working on the EVA program. So what, what what do you specifically do now? Because because I love watching spacewalks. I love watching them manipulate the outside of the ISS and 
and just float around and you whether it's someone on a single or a, a, t- a tandem um wh- what do you what do you do with them what are you monitoring are you in communications yeah. with the spacewalkers now or or, or wh- how do you, how does that work yeah so i am currently still in training um i started this job less than a year ago and it, it takes about three before you get assigned your own EVA to be in charge of. Gotcha. Um, and I guess I should define the acronym. So EVA yeah, being yeah. extravehicular activity, um, which is NASA speak for spacewalk. It'd be but, means, um, e- by extra outside of, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. Outside the vehicle, we're yeah. going to do activities. <laughs> um, but anyway, so the way that we plan spacewalks is that there's one person whose job is to to understand the tasks that are going to be done outside and really the steps, right? Writing the manual, like you need to go to this place and drive these bolts and connect these connectors. And these are all the constraints associated with that. Um, And then one person whose responsibility is the system. So the suit, the airlock, um, the consumables inside the suit and how you manage the oxygen and CO2 removal and stuff like that. Sure. Um, And so, I'm on the task side, so I'm in training to be one of those people that basically scripts spacewalk activities. Oh, that's amazing! That's amazing. Um, I I saw. I wonder if I saw pictures correctly. You've done though, because Johnsonville has, um, or JSC, if whatever, however you want to, um, mm-hmm. has the giant pool, right? Is that that's the center that mm-hmm. has like it, the world's largest pool or some some big? <laughs> I don't know if it's actually the world's largest pool, but it is a six million gallon swimming pool. Uh, with a, an entire mock-up of the ISS inside of it, right. and I was there today. So. Um, have Have you gone in a spacesuit down in the pool yet and tried even that? Have you been Not underwater? Yet, but I'm. I will eventually. Okay. I recently got fitted for spacesuit gloves, which is part of the process. I saw that. Um, I, I got s- my whole body measured by lasers to figure out what size of spacesuit would fit me the best. That's awesome. Uh, so. The process is in work for me to get to do that, but I haven't yet. Okay, cool. Very cool. Because that, that was always one of the things is wondering how, obviously, the training in water is the next best thing for close to weightlessness, right, With mm-hmm. it, it, for long periods. Um, and I know that they can repu- replicate that pretty well. I was wondering how, you know, what it was even just like to be down in a pool, and it was, in a, you, like you said, your own personal balloon and trying to manipulate tools and parts and um Mm-hmm. So, so how, how has it been? I, I imagine you have to get yourself uh, acclimated to tools in general that are available mm-hmm. to the astronauts, astronauts, and um, uh, you know, manipulation of things. How has that been? Kind of familiarizing yeah. yourself with what they have. Part of our training process is to become instructors of classes about the tools. And so okay. um, I'm certified to teach a two and a half hour long lesson about space tools. <laughs> um, it's really fun. <laughs> that sounds so amazing. Oh, wow. Um, do you have any hopes in the future of well as doing SciComm? Um, Science communication, yeah. like like being yeah. a, being being a you know I I remember you know like you said good people going to Challenger Learning Center or or any mm-hmm. of these places and and you would get representatives of NASA and places coming in and teaching SciComm and getting that introduction. Yeah. Is that something that you want as well down the road? Or? Oh, I love doing that kind of stuff. Even ever since I was a kid in Soldatna, that, that thing where I met Pete Conrad and Joe yeah. Allen, um, my parents had convinced the board of the Challenger Center to let me go to that 
by um, basically signing me up to give a speech about how wonderful a challenger center would be. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I like put on a little space suit and was like, I think that having a space camp would be amazing. Oh, that's and awesome. someday I'm going to be an astronaut. The end. <laughs> so, so, um, so you, you really like the, the being an instructor part of it as well and teaching it. And, mm-hmm. and, and I guess being able to teach it means you know it better, right? Than just studying. It oh and, yeah. Yeah. That's always the best part about teaching, right? Is you, you learn stuff um, how, from how, the questions that your students answer or ask it or the answers that you don't know and you have to go look stuff up, right? Like, yeah, of course, of course. Um, okay. So, so real quick to wrap up, I have a few questions I wrote down. Um, it's just kind of, uh, just general questions. Um, how often are Kobayashi Maru jokes made on the, <laughs> you know, <laughs> when training? Um, so not as much as you might think, but, um, when I was in the ethos group, um, there was a woman whose name was Mari and uh. <laughs> her, her ECLIS final. So ECLIS was one of the life support system teams that became ethos down the road, but she was an ECLIS and, uh, her ECLIS final was so impossibly hard that it went down in history as the Kobayashi Mari, because there was no <laughs> right answer for her in her ECLIS final. <laughs> oh, Wow. Wow. Um, what's one of the coolest, like, if you could just think off the top of your head, one of the coolest things that you've learned that you didn't think you would learn while doing oh, this, this adventure? Do you have, do you have one that just kind of sticks out? Like, I never thought I'd know this, but I know this thing now. Well, so we haven't really talked about, uh, my study of geology very much, but I oh. did go back to school and study geology. I didn't even and, realize. Um, and I studied planetary geology. So when we were talking about Mars earlier, I think something that I just never really appreciated until I studied it was how active a world Mars is. You know, yes. the, the sedimentary processes that are ongoing on Mars. You, you, you see those pictures and you think of it as just like a lifeless world. Man. But um, when you look at the rock record, you see sand dunes, like you mentioned earlier. You see signs of rivers and lakes and lava flows and all kinds of stuff that have happened um, over billions of years, right. not to mention all of the impact craters, which are a whole, you know, numerous <laughs> fields of study of themselves. Yes. Um, and so just the fact that every world in the solar system, and I say world to include planets and moons, yes. um, has just this stunning variety of processes occurring on them. And they're both, varied and similar right like fundamentally geology is geology so you just figure out the different ways that it's active on different worlds and how they're all linked in some way yeah Um, well well, that's just like really mind-blowing yeah that's i mean that's you know thinking of the activity you know speaking of that they just found the the wreck the the trace amounts of um Oh, I can't remember what protein in the atmosphere of Venus. And the only way that that yeah. much of it could be there is, you know, either from a lot of volcanic activity, which we don't have any other chemical records of any of the other gases of, of insane amounts you would see or life decay. Right. And so mm-hmm. we're, you know, we're, we're finding all of these things as instruments get better and, and the amount of time we've had to look at them with the instruments, you know, we, that, that's growing. It's the, the ever expanding 
you know, circle of knowledge. And then for every little mm-hmm. bit you get outside, oh, the next boundary is even bigger and bigger. And um, man, I think we could probably just talk about the 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 amazingness of the solar system for an entire other episode because I could just... <laughs> I could just, I, yeah, I absolutely we, we love our way through the solar system. I, I, I love our solar system. Um, what, okay. Speaking of that, what is your favorite celestial body? What is your favorite part of our oh, solar system? That is, that is a really tough question. Um, can I take a, a cop out and say the Galilean satellites? Yes. All four of them. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Yep. Um, because I think they're this perfect example of what I was saying a little while ago in that there's this just incredible array of geologic processes, right? And you have everything from Io, just this just like volcanic hellhole of like continuous hundreds of eruptions through off across its surface to you know, Ganymede just being this block of ice that has mm-hmm. clearly had some sort of weird icy tectonic activity on it as well. Um, you know, and, and Europa obviously is it currently active at least relatively recently the surface is pretty young and oh, absolutely and, yeah um and so yeah it, it's just its own little microcosm of the weird wildness of the solar system well, and, and so i really like the galilean satellites the, the, it, there it's it, yeah it's absolutely wonderful it you you know i i often you know har- kind of hearkening back to sagan and and all of our our yeah. kind of the founders of exploration and, and and pursuit of that um talk about the unknowns of the worlds right and 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 the things mm-hmm. you could learn just by stepping foot or 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 touching it with the finger um and we are now realizing that oh we not only maybe we just learning more about the 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 growth and 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 evolution of the solar system in itself but we're we're learning about actual possibilities of life within our solar system outside of earth mm-hmm. um and then with those revelations whether confirmed or denied that is then that much more that we can apply to outside of our solar system and and mm-hmm. look at look at look at look a galaxy over you know look at our next closest star and its planet formations and everything we find now just the the man that's there's just so much more so much more to learn um, yeah, it all builds, and every every new thing opens the door to the next discovery. Yes. What What are you most excited for coming up in your job? Is there something that you're looking forward to mm-hmm. a, a next kind of training module or or experience that you're just kind of pumped for? Well, so there is a spacewalk on Sunday. Oh yes, and I have been the on the job trainee for the task engineer for this spacewalk. So. I've been part of the team that developed the procedures for Sunday. What what um, can you say what they're doing, what the plan is or Yeah, yeah. There've been um some press conferences and stuff, so it's all it's public of domain. Okay. Um they're so they're in the process of installing new solar arrays on the ISS. All right. Um, and the first step of that is building a structure to attach the solar array to. So we're going out to one of uh, two of the solar arrays and we're building these, they're called mod kits. <laughs> we're building the kits um, and attaching them to the solar arrays so pre- that we can put new arrays on them eventually. Wow. Wow. So they're, so if people are thinking of the ISS, I don't know how many are familiar with the shape, but it kind of has wings, if you would call it. Mm-hmm. And those, those are just to collect power for the, 
for the ISS itself. So um, it doesn't yep. actually help with the flight. <laughs> there is no flight in <laughs> no, space. But it um, looks cool. It, it does look so cool. Um, and, and it, you know, it's been one of those fascinating things that on, on good sunny nights, I you know, or starry nights, clear nights, um, I, I love the fact that you can you have an app on your phone that you can track where it is in the sky and watch it fly by every hour and a half. Yeah, it's 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 so cool. Um, okay, well, I I don't want to keep you any longer. Thank you. Um, we'll have to do this again because I I literally have so much more I could ask you. Um, but thank you so much for your time. Um, well, thanks for having me. We'll do a follow up when I finally get to go in the pool. I can tell you what oh, it's like. <laughs> oh yes, that would be amazing. And I end uh, I end every podcast. I read poetry. Uh, and I nonsensical poetry, nonsensical verse right. is is one of my favorite forms of it because it's it's a it's a non a non confined version of uh, thought emotion, um, but but without boundaries. And so I have a a poetry donor, I would say, um, who goes by the name Fitzhugh Willoughby. And uh, that is his pseudonym. And he writes wonderful nonsense poetry. And so I told him that I was having you on today. And he wrote one space themed. So wonderful. so, So this is called Stellar Nations. She scoffs at the idea and blows her nose at you before inhaling the toxic fumes produced by her delicious truffles. What is this I've stumbled upon? Ridiculousness, yet not entirely unuseful. In its, glowing, in its glowing aura. I'd rather sit in front of this box, unmarked, and not wonder what's inside of her ob- obnoxious enigma than observe her initially, or, sorry, than observe her intently anymore. After all, she's only a fake camel in a yellow vest lying to make friends, and nobody wants that, right? Nice. <laughs> I like it. I love Ridiculous, it but not unuseful. Exactly. Yeah, and it, it makes me all honestly. I thought of the sun the first time when I first read that. I thought of the 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 kind of enigma of the sun and how we need mm-hmm. it. Yet, yet it is just so harmful to so much if we're not protected by a suit or a space vehicle or our atmosphere. Uh, the yeah. thing that we need for life is death, and it's amazing. Um, so thank you so much, Tess. This has been wonderful. My mom, by the way, wanted me to say, hi, Tess Rooney in the Mooney. She, oh, she, she, I know. I, I told her, okay, mom, I will say that. I promise. So hi, mom, if you're listening. Uh, I, I, gave I feel her like my up. dad put her up to it. So <laughs> he could have. He could have. Oh, hi, Steve, by the way, as well. Together. Hi, everybody. <laughs> um, yeah, no, this has been so much fun. Thank you for letting me pick your brain and just being an amazing human and, uh, uh, someone who is a positive force for the contribute, the continuation of the human existence, the human uh, pursuit of our solar system and getting off of the planet and knowing more about us. Like you are someone who I view as the forefront of that and helping, uh, helping us get somewhere that most people don't realize we need to get. So thank you. Thank you. Well, thanks. I'm just uh, one part of a huge organization that's pushing the forefront all together. Like you were saying earlier, it's it's a teamwork effort. It uh, it is. I'm really lucky to be part of it. But it is a starkly contrasting small percentage of people on the planet. And while it is a large organization, they're 
is just a, a the, the the amount of stuff done by such a tiny amount of people is is phenomenal for the betterment of humankind. I mean, that's yeah. You know, it's it, it's. I notice the parallel. I notice that I notice it, and I I I thank you, and I'm sure every nerd out there who wants to be an astronaut or or at least dreams of space uh is right there with you man i can't wait to i can't wait to see what happens next for you all right well thanks thanks for having me it's been really fun talking to you you too we'll talk soon have a good night all right bye bye wow that was an amazing amazing conversation ah man i wanted to know so much more nor so much more <sighs> space is amazing she is amazing I'm, I'm sure there's uh so much we could have talked about um any questions you guys want for tess for the next time she's on um please write in you can message on instagram on facebook time and stuff podcast at gmail.com um all of those things would be would be helpful would be useful and uh if you want to hear more or just reach a shout out um you know also nasa needs contributions they are not funded like they should be if we want all these things to help and not kill astronauts that we send to space uh you know help out it's all important um they need it anyways i uh i enjoyed this i love you all i hope you have an amazing week. I hope you enjoyed this. I have more big podcasts coming up soon. I can't wait to share them with you all. Thank you for your support and drive like you know each other.